Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning and welcome to Einstein A Go-Go. You're listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Jen. We've got a very exciting show today. If you're expecting to hear Dr. Shane's dulcet tones, I'm afraid you're not going to hear Dr. Shane. Hello, Dr. Shane. Enjoy your week off. We hope you're listening to us. But today here at Triple R, we are celebrating International Women's Day. So if you've been listening this morning, you'll know that across the entire grid, we're celebrating by filling the studios with women's voices. Now, those of us in the science world, we celebrated International Day of Girls and with, of uh, girls and women in science only a month ago, but we are very happy to keep keep the celebrations going. So I'm very happy to be joined in this morning. Joined this morning in the studio by Dr. Linden. Good morning, Dr. Good Linden. morning, Dr. Jen. Lovely to see you again. What's been twenty four <laughs> hours, forty eight <laughs> hours since I last saw you, but here's Today make, is an extra special day to see you. It certainly hello. is. And Dr. Crystal, hello. Good morning, Dr. Jen, and happy International Women's Day to you. Thank you and to you. And I'm very excited because we don't actually normally get to do shows together anymore. We used to back in the earlier days of Einstein and Gogo, but it's so good to be with you. I know. The panel roster has favoured us today. Um, and here we are in the studio, which is wonderful. And a big shout out to all the women uh, out there who are hopefully celebrating International Women's Day with their friends, with their family and with their colleagues. Indeed, and we're also very excited to be joined by Liv today because those of you who are regular listeners will know that Liv is normally behind our wonderful Twitter feed, but because I have no idea how to push all the right buttons and Liv does, uh, today she is doing our panelling for us. So thanks, Liv. I think we should call you Dr. Liv for today. (laughs) So what do you guys reckon? We were just having a little discussion off air about this whole idea of um, International Women's Day. And as I said, you know, we only very recently celebrated International Girls and Women in Science Day. There's so many different angles on this topic. And, you know, I tend to just jump in and want to do lots and lots of celebrating. Um, but, yeah, what do, you, what do you reckon? What should we be talking about today, Linda? Oh, look, I, it's a tough one, Dr. Jen, because it's such a beautiful day and a celebration. And I have to admit, you know, I've been hearing all these wonderful, powerful female anthem songs in the last few days and getting a bit emotional and really uh, energised. But we have to remember, as Dr. Crystal said off air just before, that you know, womanhood is not a monoculture. Just like any cultures, there's lots of different ways to think and feel and and approach a certain thing. And for some people, International Women's Day is a huge day of celebrations. For others, I think you can approach it depending on your experience with a little bit of Mm scepticism. Even there are some organisations that you think, well, you're you're making a lot of noise, but are you making a lot of change? Uh, Yes, the old pink washing. Exactly. And I think some people who look forward to a day when there doesn't need to be an International Women's Day where every day, I think the call for this year is each for equal, where each day is about being equal. And I I think that is... That's something to champion, but it's lovely to be, I don't know, seeing lots of women around today and giving a not shaking hands, but foot tapping or 
waving or, or uh, we're bumping? Ab- absolutely. And I think it really is a day um, for many that it's a day of advocacy. It mm. really is about saying, yes, we've got one day. Um, but when you look at the UN, um, who uh, the UN women, um, who their message for International Women's Day has been around that idea of um, gender um, generation equality and that, you know, we really have to think about equality, as you said, being eight for each of us, no matter what we bring to the table. And I think that involves recognising not only gender diversity, but cultural diversity, um, you know, your sexual orientation diversity, the diversity in all its different um, sort of flavours and colours. I think that it's really important to acknowledge that um, equality can mean different things for different people and there are different ways that each of us can act to help bring about that fairer world. But um, but I, I really thought that theme was really relevant to me because um, I think there is quite a lot that, you know, we need structural change in society, but you also need that cultural change. And I think that that culture is the real catalyst and that each of us can help set a right, the right culture that will help those kind of gender equality frameworks come to life oh. on a day-to-day basis. So yeah. true. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for, for all of us, we're women in STEM. We can choose to make this day what we think it should be. You know, there's been some people saying, oh, we, we should be commiserating that we still need um, an International Women's Day. But I don't see it that way. I think, well, let's turn it into what we believe is needed then and let's celebrate the opportunities it brings us to have a greater platform and have a greater voice. And, you know, for us here in the studio for the next hour, we want to celebrate these incredible women in STEM. Unfortunately, we don't have time to feature as many thousands and thousands as we'd like to, but just a few stories of what some uh, amazing women are doing. And yeah, I think absolutely right. It's, it's about the diversity. So, so I know, Lynn, and you were keen last week to mention a pretty extraordinary women in science and ran out of time. And I'd really like to hear a little bit about her today because she's just been an incredible role model. And I'm speaking, of course, of Catherine Johnson. Yeah, Catherine Johnson, who many of you may have heard, uh, passed away a few weeks ago in late February at the ripe, incredible age of 101. And she was, of course, one of the mathematicians who helped to plot the trajectory to get Apollo 11 onto the moon. So if you have seen the movie Hidden Figures, I think that really launched, well, not launched her, I guess, <laughs> into, the into the public consciousness. But she worked at NASA for over 30 years as a computer. Uh, she was one of the few African-American women who worked as a mathematician there. And she's been, her life and her career has the more you read about her, the more kind of inspired you get. She was one of the first uh, first African-American people. It was two men and, and her who were selected to uh, start the integration in the universities in West Virginia back in the 60s and 70s. And she's been curious about maths and passionate about maths her whole life. Uh, she, When she finished her education, there were no jobs for her being a mathematician, so she became a teacher for a while and then she was told that you could apply. They were looking for looking for people and they were accepting women in the NASA program and so she applied for that and then that's where she was. And I believe that her story and the quotes that you read about her, she's so unassuming mm-hmm. and for her this idea, I, I could imagine of an International Women's Day would be, oh, look, we're just getting on with our jobs. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who we are, what gender we are, what colour we are. We're just doing our jobs. But um, she, I think, is one of those women who worked very hard, worked for a long time, and it's only recently that her uh, efforts and what she's achieved has been acknowledged. So she was awarded a medal by President Obama, but that wasn't until 2015. Mm. NASA has named a building after her now. That was in 2017. Um, I think 
And I think we see more of that. The more stories that we hear of amazing women coming out, the more that's happening. But it's also, it's often so much later than when they really make their their impact. And so Catherine Johnson, I think, is a very inspiring woman in STEM and uh, she's a great loss, but she did a lot of amazing work. And I think she's inspired a lot of people and will continue to inspire people. Absolutely. And some of the things I didn't realise about her until I was reading some interviews that were published in the last couple of weeks that um, she actually left graduate school to raise a family. And it wasn't until 75 years later that she was awarded an honorary doctorate because she didn't get to finish her graduate study at the time. And also the first time she applied to NASA, she didn't get a job. There weren't any jobs going. So, you know, these stories that this beautiful narrative now that was um, so incredibly portrayed in hidden figures, but there were all of these other little nuances that you don't necessarily hear about to show that, you know, it was a struggle. Not only was she a woman at a time that that made, you know, there were a lot of barriers. And a widow as well. She exactly. was raising kids on her own. Yeah, three kids on her own. Not only was she um, non-white, which made it really difficult at that time, but she had all these other things going on as well. And yet we now know her as this incredible woman. And I love the quote from um, John Glenn, who was, you know, going into orbit in 1962. And for the, one of the very first times, all the calculations for his uh, journey had been done on the computer. And he was the one who said, look, I'm not actually sure I trust it. But if she says that it's good, you know, can you please get Catherine to check these calculations? And if she says they're good, then I'm happy to get in that ship and go. But unless she's checked it, I'm not comfortable. I thought, how amazing is that? Yeah, just just incredible. So we could talk forever about some of the uh, amazing women in history. And I hope that maybe some of the things that come out of today's celebration is that we do remember some of these historical figures. Triple R. I'm so pleased to welcome our first two guests to the studio who just weren't quite boogieing enough, but that's okay. That's all right. They were just getting set up for their interview. We have Professor Virginia Kilborn, who's the Dean of Science and a radio astronomer with the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University, and also astronomer Dr. Rebecca Allen, who's the Project Coordinator for Swinburne's Space Office and the Manager of Swinburne Astronomy Productions. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Well, I have to say, it is pretty exciting to have so many women in the studio. I feel like we need to be sending out lots of photos because we're just full of these amazing women. So, Virginia, I thought we'd begin with some of the work that Swinburne is doing. So, um, you know, we were talking before about why do we need International Women's Day? Well, we know that despite so many efforts of so many people, that even though half of science, PhD graduates and early career researchers are women in Australia, still only 17% of senior academics in Australian universities um, and research institutes are women. So, you know, what, what's going on there? What, what can we do about it? We'd love to hear what Swinburne's trying to do about this. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, um, at Swinburne, we've really recognised that this is um, what we see is a problem. And it's a problem because we want to have full participation by anybody who can actually contribute to science. And we know that we've got a lot of sort of global challenges at the moment. So, for example, um, climate change, that's a really big one. We're not going to need all hands on deck to help us with that. But also, technological challenges and things like the um, recent coronavirus really um, make us realise that we need everybody on board. So when we see statistics such as, um, you know, 17% in the highest levels um, of um, female participation, that makes us think that maybe we are creating barriers 
that we would like to remove so that we can have full participation in, in this area. So at Swinburne, we're part of the Science in Australia Gender Equity Plan, mm-hmm. and that's a really important um, initiative that has been set up by the Australian government, and a lot of higher education institutes are actually part of it. And what we're doing is through that, monitoring through statistics and um, education programs to try and increase the number of women in STEM and remove those barriers. So some of the barriers that we see, um, there's a a couple of particular points. So as you say, um, at university and postgraduate level, we might have around 50% women, but um, in particular disciplines, it's actually less. So engineering, it might be Mm -hmm. less than 20%. Physics, it's maybe 20%. So in those particular disciplines, we need some stronger actions and those stronger actions need to take place um, really at the school level. By the time you get to university in those areas, it's a little bit too late. But Mm -hmm. when you're at university, there are still some barriers. And one of the biggest barriers is once you've um, finished your degree, so so you do a um, a postgraduate degree, a PhD, and go into the workforce, get a research position, um, that is a real point where we find that we lose a lot of women. And it um, typically coincides with where women are having children or having other um, caring responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So, So at Swinburne, what we've done is we've um, actually um, advertised and employed um, women-only science fellowships or STEM fellowships. Mm -hmm. And these are um, really incredible women that we've been able to employ and they're um, in their mid-career, come in to do a four-year fellowship and then they have an ongoing position with, with our institute. And what we wanted to do is just turn that dial. So we can't just, um, if we just go at the current progress, there's something like, you know, another hundred years until we're going to have equality and we don't want to wait. We want to have it sooner. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a hundred years, it's crazy to say that we would, we would, you know, deal with waiting for that long for something that should be the situation right now where there should be equality. Yep. Virginia, that sounds amazing. Um, I know that there would be some, I kind of have a two-part question actually, I know that there would be some women who we talk, we've talked a lot on the show before about imposter syndrome and how it affects, you know, the more senior you get, the louder it rings in your ears and if you're a woman, you're more likely to think, oh, it's just a matter of time before someone knocks on the door and tells me that I'm not supposed to be here, even though you are exceptionally supposed to be there. Um, question one would be, whether that is being considered when you have these women-only roles, whether you whether that is a concern, mm-hmm. and whether Swinburne's also looking at men behaviour and men op- male opportunities for equality when it comes to moving forward and hoping to reach equality before you know, 100 years into the future. Yeah. So on the um, imposter syndrome, there has been a lot of research around that. And I think you're absolutely right that it plays a really big role in women's progression and applying for positions that they think they're um, going to be suitable for. And um, when we um, advertise for these women-only positions, we were advertising for open positions at the same time. And we found we had three times the number of women apply for the women-only positions as for the open positions. Wow. And we had a lot of women saying that they were applying directly because they saw the support for women um, at the Institute. So to me, that signals that we were doing something right there. And it's um, as you were saying earlier, it's not something we want to do forever. Like we'd like to get to the point where we're just hiring um, just it normally uh, uh, without this sort of um, bias. But I think these um, really do remove that initial barrier so that we are open to seeing the women that are, um, that are out there. 
Um, in terms of the second question, I've actually forgotten what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was unfair of me to ask a double barrel question. I just get I get quite excited and and interested in the logistics and the details and how it plays culturally in how these equ- equity plans work because oh, yeah. we know that it's not just. It's not just a, problem, a thing about fixing women. We yep. also need to make sure that it's yep. equal for everyone. And so whether a part of the Swinburne yep. plan is to make it easier for men to work part-time yes. and these kinds of things. Okay. Um, so we do have, um, we have flexible working arrangements for all staff and we have an amazing parental leave policy, which is um, one year paid leave for um, anybody who is a primary carer. Um, I think that's really um, leading the way in Australia and I would really highly encourage other um, institutes to do the same. And what we've found is that we have a really large number of um, men in my department who are working part-time looking after children, who have taken their um, parental leave for maybe six months or more. Um, and the other thing that we do offer is when people come back from carer's leave, we have a um, fund that we can help support um, travel for any anybody, it doesn't, you don't have to be a woman, um, to go to um, conferences and keep up your research because that is one of those trigger points. And so mm. we realise that as more men are taking leave, they're going to be running into the same problems that women have had over the ages. And so we're not trying to, um, you know, bias over one over the other. We just want to make sure that we have an equal footing and equity for all. And I think that's really fantastic to make the point that there are these opportunities that shouldn't be only available to women. You know, they need to be available for everybody, but if they're not available to women because of particular barriers, that's where some of the problems arise. But Virginia, I thought you made a really good point earlier, and that was that to some extent, in some situations, by the time we're um, putting in these measures at university levels, it's a little bit too late. So I wanted to ask you, Rebecca, about the SHINE program that you're involved with, because from my understanding, this is about getting um, women at, at high school age more involved in science. Can you tell us about the program that you're running? Absolutely. And first, I want to, you know, give a shout out to Virginia, because I think part of, you know, making that stage where at university there's more equity. It's about, you know, removing barriers and having opportunities, but it's also about improving the environment of the workplace. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've seen, you know, as in her role as dean is, you know, trying to create more of that um, respect, support, and collaboration. And I think then that feeds into the Shine Project, which was something that Virginia helped create. And so we have this group of high school students that come in and we've been able to do a 50-50 gender split um, on the students there. And then also we have university mentors. And so we, we provide a mix of gender uh, there as well so that our students, that they're working together on this mixed team. And then they also see that the um, university students and even PhD students that come in are a mix of genders. And then even in our leadership as well, we try to do that. So I managed a project with the past two years. I've worked with men who are in engineering and design. So it's like all the way through, we want them to see that it's about this team effort. Mm-hmm. And we've even been really lucky too, because the last two years, um, so the students, they have roles on the team and they drive the entire project. And the university students are there really just to help with these high level jobs that they they get to then apply what they learned in university. And so the last two years, our um, team leaders have been women, young women. And so it's, it's really great to see that they have that initiative to just step forward and say that, you know, they want to help lead this project and make sure that it gets where it wants to go. But you see everybody really working together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's beautiful is like at that age where we're giving them this hands-on experience to 
build an experiment that flies on the space station. And some of the ideas they come up with, they're incredible. They're right up there with, you know, what the NASA researchers are thinking of, especially even with this year's experiment. We just saw um, an amazing piece in the news how NASA grew this really nutritious lettuce on the mm. space station. And our students had decided that they wanted to send chia seeds up. So at the same time that, you know, the NASA researchers are talking about growing lettuce um, in a little pod on the space, space station right now, we're trying to grow chia seeds. So tell us about that. How did they decide on chia seeds and how do you actually make that happen like here we are in Melbourne and this is happening on the International Space Station that's incredible I think that's one great um thing about space is when you think about building something from space it's not something that an individual can do you have to come together as a team and it takes everybody's efforts and knowledge to make these incredible projects happen and so we we really give the students free reign which is the part of the project that causes me the most anxiety because <laughs> we tell them like go out and dream it up and we'll see what we can do um, but I think that's important because in high school so often you're told you know do this assignment you need to to make this mark you know so um, everything is so instructed and coordinated in their lives and so for the first time they're handed this you know, opportunity where it might fail. Mm. It might not be perfect. We're not going to tell you what to do. And so they were thinking a lot about, you know, there's all these programs and speaking of, you know, women in um, science and STEM, the NASA program Artemis to put the first woman on the moon. And so they're thinking about astronauts and long-term space flight and how will they get the nutrition that they need. And really food is this resource that we're still really challenged with because when you're being launched into space, you can't just take a whole container full of freeze-dried ice cream. Like you have to be able. <laughs> really? to, no, exactly, exactly. That um, means we're not going into space, Dr. Linda. <laughs> you better uh, pack some extra dark chocolate in your spacesuit. But no, and so the idea that you know we have to be able to grow and manage food there, and how can we do that in a way that's really resourceful and sustainable? And so you know, I'm I'm talking about this idea that they want to do a, a microbiome. So they wanted to to have yeast and chia and get this gas exchange and create a little environment where it's self-sustaining. And the great thing about growing plants is that you get to experiment with it literally a hundred different ways mm. before you put it up there. And we found that the yeast kept killing the chia in the little container. So we just decided to go with the chia seeds. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so this all sounds amazing. Um, and one of the things I love about these programs is that sometimes you are planting a seed for the future in more ways than one. Um, what, what kind of longer term outcomes or what kind of um, things do you think participants are taking forward with them after their amazingly cool, awesome science project finishes? I think that's a really import, important point to discuss because, you know, we set up this program and ultimately we would love for these students to come study at Swinburne and for us to be able to continue to shepherd them through their journey of ultimately getting to work in the space industry. But it's so organic, all of the different opportunities that come out of it. And the very first year we ran the program, one of our mentors, Michaela, um, she was a mechatronics and robotics student. What I, I just love saying that. Um, and, 
now she works as a graduate, um, uh, I guess kind of an internship uh, at Nova Systems, which is one of the top space industry companies in Australia. And so they're getting, you know, to actually realize and, and move into some of these careers and get that experience based off what they've done with us. And so I think that's fantastic. And some of the high school students, you know, again, a lot of them being in that um, kind of position, their parents kind of have ideals for what they'll, they will become. Mm-hmm. And so for some of the students, they're like, you know, maybe I'm not going to do what my parents really think I'm going to do. I'm, I'm really interested in continuing to study this opportunities in space. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really lifts my heart is because they get to come in and have that experience. And until you really get to see what something is like day to day, you don't get to appreciate it. And that's what's so hard to translate, you know, mm-hmm. even off of all of our, you know, social media platforms and everything we try to communicate. I think that leads beautifully to the last question that I wanted to ask each of you. And that is if there are girls or young women out there listening who are studying science or thinking about studying science, do you have just one little nugget of advice that you would like to share with them? Virginia? Uh, I'd say go for it and just follow your passion and see where it takes you. Beautiful. Rebecca? I agree. I, um, you know, support that. And there's nothing wrong with going for it, even if you think that it's something that you can't achieve. And I think so often we're so filled with doubt, but to me, it's, it's like, if you're interested in astronomy, study astronomy. And if you don't become an astronomer, that's okay. But the tools that you will have learned and picked up along the way are actually going to open up all these other doors that you never even imagined were there. And mm-hmm. so, yes, it is hard. I will, I will say too, I struggled with math all along, but that struggle is also incredibly enriching because you are overcoming these little challenges. And so I think, yeah, absolutely. The messages go for it. We're all nodding in furious agreement because we all just believe so passionately that, you know, wherever you end up, the skills you learn along the way are just instrumental to have, you know, having an amazing uh, future. And there's so many great things to do out there once you have some of those skills. So thank you so much. We're absolutely delighted that you could come in and join us. Thank you to Professor Virginia Kilbourne, who is Dean of Science, talking about not having enough women in senior levels at academia. It's wonderful to have you with us. Dean of Science at Swinburne University and astronomer uh, Dr. Rebecca Alan, thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. So the party continues now and we're really thrilled to invite Dr. Erin Matchen to the microphone. Erin's a geochemical researcher in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Erin. Good morning. Now, you're particularly interested in young volcanoes and their eruption histories. And I hear the word word volcano and just go, oh my goodness, that's very exciting. But can you tell me, why do we need to understand the eruption histories of volcanoes? I get that we want to know when one's about to erupt so we can all run in the opposite direction. But can you tell us about why we need to understand the history? Um, Yeah, so understanding future eruption risk is part of why we want to understand our volcanic history to Uh inform that. Um, But the ages of volcanic rocks can actually uh, help inform other sorts of studies, sort of giving us markers in time for paleoclimate studies perhaps or even archaeological studies. And as I understand it, Erin, you study volcanoes in Australia Yes, largely, which is another thing that people think, hang on. We have volcanoes in (laughs) Australia. Exactly, exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about 
do we really have volcanoes in Australia? What do you mean by a young volcano in Australia? Uh, yeah, that's an excellent question because when we talk about things being geologically young, that's different to what we might normally think of as, as a young age in history. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but in southeastern Australia, we do have some very young volcanoes that have erupted on human timescales. So the youngest being um, Mount Gambier and Mount Shank in South Australia, which are only about 5,000 years old. And for that reason, um, the volcanic province of which those volcanoes are a part is classified as active. Active, does that mean, wow. I'm going to do it, I'm, you must hate this question, but does that mean that they could blow at any time? Um, probably not those particular volcanoes, but another one could pop up um, close by in South Australia or Victoria, like Western Victoria specifically. Wow, you heard it here first. I like, Active I like, volcanoes. I like this idea of saying, I'm not young, but I'm geologically young. <laughs> <laughs> Can we all just adopt that as our new maxim? So, Erin, there was this fantastic write-up of your work in Science magazine. Congratulations. That doesn't just happen easily. Um, but it was published under this really interesting title, which I loved. And the title was, Is an Aboriginal Tale of an Ancient Volcano the Oldest Story Ever Told? And my mind just immediately leaps to all sorts of exciting things. Can you tell us, what does your research have to do with Aboriginal storytelling? Um, all right. Uh, that. Yeah, this, this angle of our research, I guess, has been really picked up by the international media and it is a really um, kind of tantalising and sort of provocative idea. Uh, so our research on dating these young volcanoes in uh, Victoria specifically sort of stemmed out of a project, a McCoy project done between Melbourne University and the Melbourne Museum looking at uh, whether our volcanic history could um, sort of give us better understanding that could improve our archaeological knowledge in any way. So that study sort of took a couple of different approaches. So we were looking at um, uh, whether there were any artefacts that have been reported from underneath uh, volcanic horizons in Victoria or whether there might be any uh, oral traditions um, of the mm -hmm. traditional owners that might pertain to any of these particular volcanoes that, that we could potentially date. Uh, so, yeah, getting back to that um, oral history side, uh, one of the volcanoes we studied as part of this work was um, the Bush Bim Volcanic Complex. Mm -hmm. And that volcanic complex, which is um, located uh, sort of in Western Victoria, sort of about um, 50 k's from Warrnambool. Um, the oral traditions surrounding that volcano have been interpreted by others to reference volcanic activity and there were some um, radiocarbon ages giving a minimum age estimate of about uh, 31,000 years for mm -hmm. that volcano but the um, eruption products themselves hadn't been dated okay. definitively. And, and how do you go about dating them? What have you done to date them? Uh, so I use a technique called argon dating, which relies on the natural radioactive decay of potassium mm -hmm. to argon. And that has a really long half-life. It's about 1.25 billion years for half of the potassium-40 in a sample to decay to argon-40. That's a pretty long time. <laughs> yes, that's right. So when you're trying to date something that's, uh, you know, only a few tens of thousands of years old, it's really tricky because you're measuring such a small number of these radiogenic um, atoms in the sample. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to 
trying to piece all of this information together. You've got the the argon dating information. You've got the potential for artifacts either above or below the the volcanic yep. kind of layer, and then you have indigenous stories as well. I'm interested into. I'm interested about what the lead is there if you if you knew or you're working with the indigenous community and you'd heard a story so you went hunting for a date or you had a date and you thought i wonder if we could verify this through other pieces of information what's the kind of conversation there thinking about all the knowledge that it would exist in the melbourne museum and your expertise in this field it must have been quite an interesting conversation and a hunt to kind of put all this information together. Yes, and it it was sort of a somewhat iterative process and we did get involved um, in conversations with the traditional owners, particularly the Gunditch Mirroring Traditional Owners um, Aboriginal Corporation uh, quite early on um, because I was aware of this, uh, the the oral traditions around Bush Bim, but I suppose the... uh, the main archaeological lead we had was uh, I'd gone digging through the literature to find if there were any documented um, stone tools that were recovered from underneath volcanic ash or lava flows. And the only one I could find was um, a 1947 study that was buried in the proceedings of the Royal Society of Victoria. (laughs) And that was uh, on the discovery of this um, Bushfield axe, a stone tool found underneath the um, very... Uh, finely layered um, volcanic ash from Tower Hill. So we were fortunate that that uh, study had been very well documented so we could be confident that that artefact was um, sort of not disturbed in, at its sort of stratigraphic level um, and that uh, Tower Hill, that volcano is only about 40 kilometres away from the Bujbim volcanic complex so that puts people in the landscape at that time and our yeah, Argon ages for both Tower Hill and Bushbeam come out at about 37,000 plus or minus 3,000 years. Oh, wow. Just amazing. So that's a big advance in our understanding of the history of Victoria. Uh, yes, because um, prior to this, uh, we really didn't have um, uh, much archaeological evidence for people being in the landscape beyond about 13,000 years. Like, of course, we've thought it's, it's highly likely based on um, sort of some very old occupation sites in Tasmania, South Australia and New South Wales that are older than 30,000 years. But yeah, I guess this is another sort of uh, angle to look at archaeology through. So, Erin, you talked about digging through the literature. Did you actually go out and get to <laughs> dig at the site? Like, are you, are you, do you, conduct, how, I'm just curious, how do you conduct your research? Like, how do you get these samples? Like, are you, are you like hands on, you know, in your Indiana Jones archaeology mode? Oh, or, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> yep. So, we went to, sampled from a quarry, a sort of a historical quarry um, in the, one of the big lava flows from Mount Eccles, sort of with our sledgehammers to, get a nice um, well-crystallised piece of lava <laughs> suitable for dating and yeah at Tower Hill we sampled a what's known as a lava bomb. A lava bomb I love yeah. it and then once you've um, chipped away your lava bomb and you've got this beautiful piece of uh, this beautiful specimen um, how, how do you like you talked about the argon dating like is that done in a big machine is it done in a lab how, how, what, what does it look like? Uh, yes so the analyses for this project were actually done at two labs so should I, sh- I should also give some credit to my colleagues at Curtin University because they did some of the analyses too. Uh, so 
yeah, the samples are analysed on um, what's known as a noble gas mass spectrometer. So, oh, love a mass spectrometer. <laughs> yeah, so we, we're um, using sort of these new generation instruments, which are 10 times more precise than instruments from more than 10 years ago. So that allows us to date these really young rocks with quite low potassium contents. Amazing. Wow. I just love the fact that you've got the newest cutting edge technology to look at some of the oldest technology. Like that's just like such a great mashup. So mm. good. Erin, um, given that it sounds like, I mean, you make being a geologist sound really cool <laughs> <laughs> because you have such a broad range. You know, you're digging through the literature and you're digging through the dirt and you also get to work through in massive labs. I'm interested to see if you could tell us how you got into the science. I mean, what inspired you to get into this field? Uh, well, I suppose I discovered geology really just at university, hadn't had much exposure to it in high school, and it just seemed like a really cool intersection of the various physical sciences. I'd already been into chemistry and physics, and I just found the combination of lab work and field work like, quite compelling. And Erin, if there are any girls or young women listening who are thinking about getting into science, what's your little nugget of wisdom for them? Other than, <laughs> other than, other than do it. Oh, I think the, the uh, previous guest's um, advice about to start following your passion and seeing where it takes you is, is a great one. Fantastic. And look where it's taken you. That's such exciting research, Erin. Thank you so much for coming and sharing it with us, particularly on International Women's Day. That was Dr Erin Matchen, who is a geochemical researcher in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Such interesting stuff going on. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. And we are joined by yet another wonderful guest in the studio, Lily Brown, who has just joined us. Lily is a community engagement ranger and a forest firefighter at Parks Victoria. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, everyone. Now, I, I told these guys, Lily and I um, are fortunate enough to know each other. We were privileged to go to Antarctica together at the end of last year with Homeward Bound, and we might talk about that a little bit later. But when I started talking with Dr. Shane about this show, I immediately said that I wanted to bring Lily in because I guess one of the things I feel really passionate about that if International Women's Day is going to give us a platform, one of the things it can do is to talk about areas of science that maybe women don't necessarily think of going into. And to me, that is fire, Lily. So can you tell us how did you get interested? How did you get interested and become a firefighter? It Fire, it actually kind of happened by accident. Um, so I was studying my Bachelor of Science at Melbourne Uni and Jen was actually one of my lecturers. I'm not that old, there, so it's okay. There are just <laughs> across this city and this country mm-hmm. a lot of people who are saying, well, I owe my career and my passion to Dr. Jen. So yes, not alone there, Lily. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just, I studied plants and animals. I was always pretty obsessed with nature growing up and spent a lot of time outdoors. So I just followed what I was interested in and fire just naturally played a really big part of those studies. Uh, It's a really natural disturbance process, especially in Victoria. So it kind of was in all subjects that I studied. And then I had the opportunity to do my honours thesis in Western Australia on fire ecology. And when my lecturer got up and sort of started talking about the project, I was like, I don't, this sounds amazing. Like I need to go to WA and live on the coast and learn about fire. Like, cool. (laughs) And, um, and then unfortunately Black Saturday happened here in Victoria. So a lot of jobs came out of 
out of that. And the science graduate program with the Department of Environment, then DSE and now DELP, uh, there were some fire management roles that came out of their science grad positions. And uh, yeah, I put my hand up for that. And I kind of missed the fine print that that meant you had an operational fire role as well. <laughs> so I was pretty surprised to start uh, in November instead of January. And it started with three weeks worth of fire training to be a general firefighter. So it it kind of happened by accident that I became a firefighter, but it's now one of the favourite parts of my job. And what is it that you love about it? Because one of the things that came across really strongly when we were in Antarctica and you spoke about your work was this deep passion you have for not just the, you know, not just the fire ecology, the more uh, academic side of it, but actually being out there and fighting fire. What, what is it that you love about it? I guess um, a big part of it for me is the camaraderie with, with your crews. Like the relationships you build are really deep and, um, you know, you experience a lot together. So just that teamwork and camaraderie that comes out of working in a really tight-knit fire crew is awesome. Um, but I guess as well working for the community, so uh, that's a really important part of who I am is trying to help people stay safe um, and the ecological side of it as well is really interesting. And there's a lot of, um, there's a big misconceptions around firefighting. There's not a lot of brawn that's involved in it. It's actually, um, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. There's a lot of brain power required um, and strategies to, to fight fires, especially on the really large scales. So I think, you know, you really, you use your brain a lot in fire and um, I really enjoy that mm-hmm. part of it. It's great to hear that, Lily, because I imagine, or for myself, actually, particularly after this last summer, I'm thinking, right, I'm going to do SES training. This is going to happen. But one thing that makes me a bit hesitant is to think, well, I don't know if I have that brawn, I can't physically lift the things that are needed to be lifted. I'm going to be more of a hindrance than a help to the team. How does that play out in the groups that you work in? You know, that distribution of skills and those kinds of things, the special role that women can play in those groups. Yeah, well, there's actually a little bit of research out of the US around the role that women play in fire crews. And they've found that the more women in the fire crew, the more effective you are as a team. So, <laughs> oh, how it, interesting. It, it turns yeah. out it, it aligns with every other study we've ever seen. Yeah. It says that if you have a diversity of people, they make better decisions. Yeah, <laughs> so not only, not only operationally are they fighting the fires better and having better outcomes, but they're actually safer as well. Um, so I think my personal experience, the more women I've had on crew with me, it kind of, it, it can sometimes take that macho energy out that can sometimes happen in big groups of men. Mm. Um, but it also, yeah, I think everyone just relaxes a bit. The communication levels are much higher. Um, and, you know, like in all teams, you draw off each other's strengths um, and accommodate each other's weaknesses. So, yeah, like you said, it's just about that diversity of experience and skill and knowledge that everyone brings into a team. Um, and yeah, the more women I've worked with in fire, the the better I've felt the outcomes have been for the crew. Which all sounds amazing and, and, you know, as we've just said, not at all surprising that having more women there helps. But is it also really hard? You know, is it difficult? Are there particular challenges that come with being a, a woman in fire? It can be. I think I'm really lucky based out of Melbourne. Um, we have a lot of women in fire in Melbourne. So often when we get sent away to fires, like the last few years, I've been sent in 50-50 men to women ratios in task forces. So as a group, we've got a lot of support when we're heading out to to regional fires. Um, but yeah, when you're out in the regions, it can be really challenging. You know, when I first started, I would be one of 
to like one woman out of two or three hundred men um, out on the fire line. So that wow. can be a little bit intimidating. Um, and sometimes you feel like you kind of need to be one of the boys and to fit in and be part of the group. Um, but I guess the older I've got and the more experience that I've I've had, I've found that, that that's not necessary. And all the crews I've worked in um, have always been super supportive um, and just yeah, really, I've, I've only really had really positive experiences with, with my own crews as they get to know you and see that you are really capable. Mm. So I think the biggest challenge is just normalising women on the fire line. Yep. And so we're lucky, yeah, that here in Melbourne we've got such great numbers that we can be sent away and into those regional communities and be seen as really effective firefighters out on the line. And have you got some ideas about how to get more girls and women into firefighting? Yeah, I've got a few ideas kind of brewing around in my mind. Um, New South Wales runs some great uh, girls in fire camps. So I think that's something that, yeah, I'd love to bring into Victoria. Um, And a little bit more around uh, women's fitness as well. So you do have to pass a fitness test, which is not hard, but I think it can limit some women's, you know, to take that leap to kind of get into the industry. Um, So I think, yeah, kind of exposing what, what the fitness test is, how to train for it and get ready for it and maintain that fitness over the fire season as well, Um, particularly for women who don't spend a lot of time in the gym or don't have that experience or knowledge of how to do that. So that's definitely an area as well I think we could improve on um, together. Mm, For sure. Lily, I'm interested in learning how your operational experience there out on the front lines and going out to these different communities and fighting has informed the the academic side of the work that you do looking at fire ecology. Do you feel like now you've spent more time in the fire zone, that has changed the way that you approach that aspect of your role? Uh, so currently I don't, I don't have a research role in fire ecology. It's just my background. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, it, it definitely gives me an insight into both the, the academic side of, of fire and then the, the realistic version of, of how we manage it and how it works on the ground. So I think there is, um, you know, we, we work really well with a lot of researchers um, and with DELP as well around um, sort of the link between science and how to apply that on the ground. So you do see a lot of feedback there, a lot of conversations happening yes. two-way, yeah. not just yeah. this is what the research says, so you should change practice, but feeding Yeah, back. I think there is really strong relationships between the researchers and the people on the ground doing it. So um, it's been a long there's been so many years of research into fire, um, particularly with forestry backgrounds as well. So I think there's really good links there already in place. And um, I think we learn quite a lot from each other in that in that space. Lily, you and I, as I said, were fortunate enough to be in Antarctica at the end of last year, which is an experience I reflect on every day, and I'm sure you do too. And then, of course, we came back to a summer of really extreme bushfires. How are you kind of feeling about the state of the world and, and the role that women in science might play in, in a more um, sustainable future? I don't know. I, I think about it every day, and I'm kind of imagining that perhaps you do too. Yeah, I guess I haven't really had the chance to kind of reflect back on Antarctica yet, having, yeah, like you said, we got back, it was Christmas and then the fire season exploded. Um, but I think, you know, I, I really look back on that Homeward Bound voyage uh, and it really inspires me and gives me hope for the future and knowing that there's all these incredible women all across the world doing amazing things definitely energises me to keep going. So, yeah, that's probably the main 
the main thing I get out of it. Antarctica was beautiful, but the women that I met there definitely um, give me energy to kind of keep going and working towards, you know, the, the things we need to do to to ensure we've all got somewhere safe to live. That's exactly how I feel. And that's why you're here, because I feel so energised by meeting people like you who work in areas that are you know, well outside my own area of, of expertise and experience who are doing incredible things. And when you spoke about this idea of camps to get more girls thinking about fire as something where they could really contribute, it just made me incredibly excited. So, Lily, we're nearly out of time, but I would like to ask you too, for the, for the girls and women listening, do you have any advice for them about uh, if they're thinking about science? What should they do next? Oh, I think just as others have said, just keep studying what interests you um, and focus on what you're passionate about and where that energy comes for you. Um, And I think just find someone uh, to be a mentor as well. I think having really strong female leadership is really important um, just to kind of learn from other people's experiences. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, just to get that kind of energy and oomph that you need to to keep going um, and know that there's a lot of amazing women in science around. So reach out and kind of, um, yeah, stay in touch with that community and just go for it. Wonderful. And we've been lucky enough to talk to a whole lot of members of that community today. So sadly, uh, our time is up, our special International Women's Day Einstein and Go-Go special. But thank you, Lily from Parks Victoria, for joining us. Dr. Crystal and Dr. Lyndon, always such a pleasure to uh, be on air with you. And Liv, Dr. Liv, you've done such a brilliant job. And I feel like we should give a shout out to uh, our illustrious leader, Dr. Shane, who graciously handed us the uh, the reins for today's show. So thank you, Shane. But uh, until next week when Einstein and Gogo will be back, remember that science is everywhere and enjoy your Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.